You, you, you made a comment that was very interesting, and, and uh, it seemed to me, that, and this comes back to um, um, the reclassification of uh, possession from felonies and misdemeanors, so people who uh, abuse these substances are back out abusing the substances some more. And I understood you to suggest that it, that is indirect, well, not indirectly, but directly um, maintaining a revenue stream for the drug cartels because if the users were in prison where they didn't have direct access to the substances, they would not be funding the cartel's sale of them. And if they were in prison, they might have a shot at getting rid of their drug addiction. Uh, they have, uh, well, look, Los Angeles County uh, uh, is, let's say, to put it mildly, burdened with the homeless population. Mm -hmm. And a good chunk of that homeless population are drug addicted individuals. <clears throat> if they were arrested uh, by law enforcement and put in the system where they might have a shot at getting rehabilitated, mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, that would be a good thing. But that doesn't exist. So what do they do? Mm -hmm. They live in the streets, live in their tents, and uh, live really for their drugs and their drug abuse. That is a great failure of society that we're not even providing a mechanism mm -hmm. for them to deal with their addiction and their problem. Just like society, government has absolutely failed to deal with the mentally ill by forcibly incarcerating those individuals who would benefit from incarceration and treatment. Mm -hmm. But we abandoned that a long time ago. Uh, the state abandoned that historic responsibility uh, when they adopted the Lanterman Petrus Short Act, but 40 years ago, uh, complete abdication of that responsibility. It, it, it seems to me that um, the uh, drug cartels are not particularly benevolent. I doubt that they're handing out drugs um, to the homeless for free. Um, so, which raises the question then how do the homeless fund their habit? Steal. Um, steal so we've got a or, full circle they steal or they deal um, and um, you know there's a lot of people between um, the drug cartels mm -hmm. uh, and and the ultimate uh, substance abuser there's a lot of uh, intermediate sellers and others uh, besides the cartels who are profiting from uh, poisoning others but, but, but it's, a vicious, it's a vicious circle because yeah. these people are on the street uh, and they're funding their uh, habit by stealing, hence the increase right. in crime. And the money goes eventually to some, some criminal somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's not being taxed. It's not going to the public coffers, that's for sure. Well, well let, 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 me, let me come to one more component, uh, which uh, I suspect is contributing to the, uh, the increase in the um, loss of public safety, and, and that is a recent court decision uh, that has said it's... Uh, um, unconstitutional uh, to impose a bail uh, without taking into account the ability of the defendant to pay that bail uh, and that's had the net effect of having so many people released on their own recognizance now which puts people back on the street I think within 48 hours uh, after they've been arrested for for particular crimes can, can you speak to that well that decision just came down a couple weeks ago and that was made by a Superior Court judge it's been put on hold uh, pending appeal, this should be appealed. Right. Uh, the uh, 
I don't want to get into the particular judge who made the decision, but let's just say uh, I don't think it was a well-informed decision when it comes to having uh, people with experience with the justice system and how the bail system works uh, as uh, informing that judge about the impact uh, of declaring it unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think, maybe that was just a first step towards some other appellate court or the Supreme Court really dealing with that issue of uh, inequality. Uh, but I've always had great faith in the bail system, and here's why. The judges who set the bail schedule for the whole array of crimes, including nonviolent, non-serious, and misdemeanors, uh, uh, they're, they're experienced people. They have a committee of experienced criminal judges who make that determination. And then within the penal code, uh, there are mechanisms for an individual who's arrested to almost immediately have their uh, bail lowered mm -hmm. significantly. Mm -hmm. It's called a bail deviation mm -hmm. uh, or even achieve an OR release. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like uh, the this judge's decision was complete. Any nonviolent, non-serious uh, felony and all misdemeanors, no bail required. I think that was uh, uh, not very subtle right. uh, or sophisticated or nuanced. Um, and I hope that um, whoever was a part of that action uh, actually appeals it to another court who may have a better perspective on reality uh, and more respect for the fact that, that system was working and it was put in place by thoughtful, smart, experienced people. We, we, we talk about the rate of crime, um, and I haven't really given you a chance to define what that is. What is that rate calculated on? Is that uh, how many crimes are committed per 100,000 population, or is it some other basis? Well, there's the... Uh, um, the FBI keeps statistics, and they have uh, rules for all of law enforcement throughout the United States to report certain crimes. Um, and there's seven part one crimes, ranging from grand theft auto uh, to murder. And uh, the local agencies are responsible, uh, as are the states, to report those crimes to the FBI so they, so they can have some sort of sense of the crime rate. Uh, and this is publicly available yeah. information? Yeah, yeah, they, they publish it every year. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think that is probably one of the most reliable statistics. Now, other crimes could be rampant but are not reflected in a crime rate. You know why? Because they don't get reported because sometimes people give up. They know nothing's gonna happen. And that's uh, a result of Prop 47, for example. If you diminish a crime to the mm -hmm. point where nothing's gonna happen, why should someone waste their time reporting it? An example of losing respect or faith in the yeah, law. Why should, why should a police officer take a report? It's not gonna go anywhere. It's a big nothing. Um, so I think that <clears throat> uh, statistics, you know, the old saying, there's three kinds of lies, mm -hmm. lies, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, <laughs> I. I, uh, I'm always very suspicious of people when they cite statistics 
in support of some proposition. Right. Uh, I, I have a lot more faith in anecdotal experience uh, and my own experience than I do in someone else's statistics. I, I think uh, we owe that quote to uh, Mark Twain. You're totally right, <laughs> Mark Twain. He had a lot of good quotes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, along with, uh, I think he said, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Yes. That's another good. He was a smart guy. So, <laughs> so um, are, are the categories of the crime changing uh, as, as we move along? Um, you know, is, is, are more crimes being committed uh, of, a, of a different nature than they were, say, 12 or 14 years ago? Oh, yeah. Fentanyl didn't exist 12 or 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, Drug abuse occurred yeah. uh, 12 or 14 years ago. Different kinds of drugs. Uh, China's been a culprit for decades in terms of manufacturing the precursor drugs that went into PCP, for example. Right. Uh, and Mexico, historically, has been um, a, a, a pretty uh, active laboratory in terms of producing drugs. Uh, and of course, Americans, they've got their appetite for drugs, which they ought to think about maybe cooling their jets a little bit mm -hmm. and stop being consumers uh, and abusers. Uh, so it's really sort of a, that uh, it all goes back. Right now, uh, the fentanyl crisis is, uh, we've never had as many deaths as a direct result of a drug use that we have right now. And that's because the way fentanyl um, is put out there in the marketplace. You know, some drug dealer doesn't go down and say, hey, I got some great fentanyl here. Mm -hmm. They say, hey, man, you want some Oxycontin? Oh, yeah, I love so. I love some. I like that stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they take the federal, they die. <laughs> it's just, uh, and it's happening to uh, individuals who have no intention of overdosing. Uh, they just want to get high on something, they, uh, but they don't realize that it's laced with fentanyl. And that's where you got, what, 300,000 deaths a year in the United States of America? Uh, it's it's just a, it's an epidemic. So tracing the money, um, um, following up on your comment, um, tracing the money trail with fentanyl um, has a different route than some of the earlier drugs. Uh, were you suggesting that a lot of this money goes back to China? Mexican cartels and China. Hmm. China supplies the precursors. Uh, in many cases, and then the cartels are play a major role in distributing it, mm -hmm. smuggling it into the United States of America. Mm. Uh, and I think, I think production occurs in both places, but they're, they're the main culprits when it comes to fentanyl. Uh, and that's as contrasted, for example, to cocaine. Yeah, it's a co yeah, contrast with cocaine. Cocaine's more South American, uh, Colombian, mm. Peruvian, in the Andes, when they grow it, and the Colombians process it. And they played a great role uh, originally in terms of distributing within the United States, and that was taken over by the Mexican, Mexican cartels mm -hmm. at some point mm -hmm. because they were more efficient at uh, distributing it. So the Colombians just redounded to essentially processing it, mm -hmm. getting it to the cartels, uh, as opposed to being the primary smugglers. And so the cartels became the primary smugglers there. PCP. Uh, a lot of that was manufactured locally. Mm -hmm. uh, just like methamphetamine mm -hmm. was manufactured locally. But the precursor drugs were oftentimes coming from China to Mexico. The, um, I have to ask the obvious question then. Um, communists, is, uh, to put it mildly, not an open country. 
um, to me, it seems hard to believe that there could be that type of trafficking in the precursor out of China without uh, the um, participation uh, uh, or the approval or, or at least looking the other way by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, but I, think you're totally, I think you're totally right. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> they are effectively our enemy. Mm -hmm. At the extent they uh, denigrate our society, uh, hurt us, cause us to be weaker, uh, well, then, then they, they gain. They, they gain in comparison to us. Uh, secondly, economically they gain. China is a totalitarian state. Mm -hmm. uh, if they wanted to crack down <clears throat> on the supply of precursors mm -hmm. from China to Mexico or elsewhere, they could do it in a heartbeat because they are a dictatorship. Dictatorships are very efficient. They're brutal. Uh, uh, they're horrible, <laughs> mm -hmm. but they're efficient. They could crack down on the the uh, precursor drugs for fentanyl right now because they're a totalitarian state. But they don't want to crack down on it because it's hurting who whom they perceive the country they perceive to be their primary enemy. United States of America. You know, we, we've, uh, the national discourse on this is, uh, of course, focused to a very large extent on the welfare of the individuals who overdose or are taking fentanyl. And I'm not aware of anybody's ever focusing on the fact that this is also a national security issue. So if, if we're providing revenue uh, to the, that uh, the Chinese Communist Party can use to build another aircraft carrier, another fighter aircraft on the one hand, on the other, and then on the other side of the equation, uh, taking so many American lives in the process, it seems like uh, by virtue of letting this fentanyl crisis grow, that uh, the Chinese Communist Party benefits twice over. That's just one of their tentacles. Uh, how, how about uh, the theft of uh, uh, intellectual property, mm -hmm. um, which is rampant. Yeah. China's stealing uh, valuable intellectual property and other things made in America right. for their own benefit also. So they're gonna um, try and benefit themselves at our expense every way they can, whether it be um, fentanyl manufacturing and sales, uh, which has, does gain them some money, right. uh, and, and besides hurting America, to uh, other things. And mm. I think that uh, our, our country really has to see if they're being um, taken advantage of. Hmm. So fentanyl obviously is huge, it's new, newer, um, and we're focusing on uh, roughly, uh, I think the time frame we've identified where things really started to uh, get out of control was roughly about 2012, uh, so 11, 11 over yeah, a decade. Fentanyl may have been a little later in terms of being uh, the scourge that it is nowadays. But, and then, uh, then but, we know crime, but the laws in general, you can start back about 2010 with AB 109, and then it's been downhill ever since between AB 109, Prop 47, Prop 57, and a number of other laws that have come out of our state legislature. And burglaries, robberies are up. What about murders and sex crimes? Are those up as well? Murders are going up. Uh, I think sex crimes, rape, things of that nature, probably going up uh, slowly but surely. Uh, but it's not like overnight. Mm -hmm. it, just, mm -hmm. it just takes time as individuals mm -hmm. who should be in or out right. uh, commit those crimes. But uh, we aren't yet 
to where we were uh, back in the mid-70s, early 80s. And that, in my view, was prompted by uh, uh, the rock cocaine mm-hmm. problems mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, people fighting over distribution and the profits of rock cocaine and the emergence of gangs. The gangs in that, in that era, uh, the Crips, the Bloods, uh, the rest of them, really started growing in the mid-70s, early 80s. So you had sort of a combination of uh, this dramatic abuse of rock cocaine and then a dramatic expansion of involvement in gangs. Well, you know, you know having this conversation um, seems like it's a bleak conversation, but you did say one thing that uh, maybe is a little bit of sunshine um, and you and it's good to have this historical perspective because you, I think what you just said is that the, the crime rates that we're dealing with now even though from our perspective seem to be out of control that it's not yet as bad as it was in the late 70s and early 80s well it doesn't make it good <laughs> it doesn't make it good but but um, but I think a lot of people have the impression that it's never been this bad um, and and so well, to the ex- no, and yeah, you're right. It hasn't yeah. been this bad. Right. We dealt with it. We yeah. dealt with it by changing the laws, enforcing the laws, good judges, aggressive and appropriate law enforcement, and um, professional, skilled prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Turned that around in the context of uh, a, a very good system called the determinate sentence law system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, things kind of came together. That's what caused it to go down to a 60-year low. Mm-hmm. Now, what was the, the parts of the equation that came together being sort of taken apart by, you know, legally and, and otherwise, that's the reason we start to see crime go back up. Uh, well, there's, well, lack, there's lack of commitment by our governmental leaders to uh, the historic concepts of incarceration and, and punishment for criminals. Well, I, I haven't forgotten about good laws and good enforcers. Um, and so um, I think we identified 4757 and AB 109 as being examples of not good laws uh, that created this process. Um, we haven't talked a lot about the good enforcers or lack thereof, but let, 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 let's, let, let's assume here we are in 2023. Um, than looking at it solely from the standpoint of good laws. You know, we, we got out of this mess in the late beginning of the early 80s by determinate sentencing and other uh, changes in the law as well. What now should we be doing um, to follow the pattern set 45 years ago so that we can get this under control and start improving our crime rate? I don't particularly have uh, much faith in the public at large passing um, uh, laws like the historic three strikes law, mm-hmm. uh, which is appropriately modified mm-hmm. uh, later on. I don't see them. Uh, uh, I don't see there any force to do that. There were um, many uh, really salutary, good initiatives undertaken back in the, the 70s and 80s to get rid of the adverse effects of Rose Bird and her Supreme Court. Some good things were done in response to that. Uh, I don't see any uh, real uh, movement to do that nowadays. Uh, I have very little faith in the California State Legislature as it's currently comprised to do anything 
positive on the public safety front. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. see them continuing to pass laws that um, make things more complicated mm -hmm. for the law enforcers, the prosecutors, uh, uh, and easier for the criminal element. Uh, I see them doing things that are uh, very insensitive uh, to victims, victims next of kin, of murder victims. Uh, I don't have much faith in the state legislature. So, uh, well, how, how did this happen? Because we, we've got a rising crime rate, rising crimes in, in total number. Um, so many people that you run into um, feel a terrible loss of public safety. Why aren't our political leaders dealing with that? Because I think there are other factors out there that influence the voting public. Um, besides, you know, public safety is an important issue. It's not the only issue that's out there. There's lots of other things that cause people to vote a certain way for a certain uh, political party or certain candidates right. other than public safety. Uh, so as, as important as it is, it doesn't seem to be uh, maybe as important as it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't see any, I don't see any solutions on the horizon. Uh, I'm, well, you said, you know, kind of our discussion been kind of bleak. Well, things are bleak. Mm -hmm. I don't see any uh, uh, anything really happening here. Maybe we can pick off a few of these um, radical left wing, erstwhile so called progressive DAs. That would be a big step in the right direction. Um, and uh, but that's the only thing I can see that we could do right now is point out who these lousy prosecutors are that are truly public safety endangering in and of themselves. And there's about five or six in California, probably about 14 to 20 in, throughout the United States, that if they disappeared tomorrow, we'd all be a lot better off. I'm talking about uh, New York, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Se Seattle, Portland, Milwaukee, LA, uh, San Francisco fixed their problem. We got a couple others in California that should be knocked out. Um, and in San Francisco, you're referring to the recall of that DA. Yeah, that, that DA got recalled. Now there's someone in there who's actually a pretty good DA. She knows what she's doing. She has some experience. Um, she actually <laughs> follows the law, which is nice for a change compared to that uh, Boudin guy, um, Chessie Boudin, um, who just did his own thing. Of course, we have, uh, uh, I, we shouldn't even criticize San Francisco. They're not even that big. They're only 700,000 people. LA County's got 10.4 million people. So we're, so we got Gascon. We got something 14 times worse than San Francisco. 